This week is a double parsha. We have Chutas and Balak. And the reason why we have a double parsha is because we need to resynchronize with our brethren in the land of Israel. We had two days of Shavuos. They had only one, and therefore they've been a week ahead of us for the last couple of weeks. And now we are back in schedule, synchronized with our brethren in the land of Israel. And there is a lot to discuss in these parshios. We start off with a red heifer ceremony, the very elaborate ceremony and process that's done to produce the special ashes that are sprinkled upon people that become impure, that have come into contact with the dead. We have the death of Miriam. Miriam is Moshe's older sister. She dies, and when she dies, the well of Miriam, the well of water that has been producing for the nation for almost 40 years, that ceases. And God tells Moshe, go speak to the rock, and it will emit water. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe strikes the rock, and that sin, that soul solitary sin, condemns Moshe and Aaron to pass before the entrance to the land. And then we begin a lot of discussions about the wars of conquest and the negotiations on the east bank of the Jordan. So we have the negotiation with Edom. Edom is, of course, the descendants of Esav. We want to pass through. We're not going to make any problems. We'll pay for passage. That is refused. The nation veers away. We have the death of Aaron, the succession of Elazar. We have an attack by Amalek. Amalek masquerading as Canaanites. They attack. Israel launches a counteroffensive. We have the episode of the attacking serpents. We have the serpent staff. If you're bitten by a serpent, you look up to the staff and you connect to God. You pray to God and you will be saved. We have the song of the well. We're counting the miracles on the east bank and the wars of the east bank with the war against Sichon, the king of the Amorites, the war against Og, the king of Bashan, and then the final settlement of the nation in the plains of Moab opposite Jericho. Now, this is all in Parsha's Chutas, which is just the first installment of this week's double Parsha. Now, these stunning defeats of the fearsome nations on the east bank of the Jordan, that's what prompted Balak, the king of Moab, which is another east bank nation. He commissioned Bilam, the sorcerer slash prophet, to go curse the nation, and that is the subject of next week, or the second half of this week's Parsha, double Parsha, Parsha's Balak. It focuses on Bilam and the many different attempts, well, first, the memorable trip that he has to go to the nation, and the many different attempts that he has, that he undertakes to curse the nation, to try to undermine the nation, and how they were all foiled. Instead of cursing the nation, Bilam is compelled to bless them again and again, four times in total. But the parsha ends on a down note. The final act of Bilam is not a curse, but a recommendation, and that one does land. He advises Balak to get the Moabite and the Midianite women to seduce the Jewish men and to use that as a vehicle to get the Jewish men to do idolatry. He reasons that... The God of this nation hates promiscuity, and that's how you drive a wedge between the people, between the nation and the Almighty, and that works. And there's a total breakdown, and Moshe instructs the heads of Israel to execute the idolaters, and the parsha ends with a very disturbing and horrific incident, 
the leader of the tribe of Shimon, a gentleman by the name of Zimri, he cohabits with a Midianite princess, Cosby, in a very public manner. And Pinchas, who is the grandson of Aaron, the son of Elazar, he does his act of zealotry and he skewers them and he kills them, but not before 24,000 die in a plague. And that's how the Parsha ends. And next week is Parsha's Pinchas and it picks up in the aftermath of the episode of Pinchas. Fair to say there's a lot going on this week. There's a lot to talk about. It's like a smorgasbord, a cornucopia of subjects, but we will start at the very beginning. And that's the red heifer. A most mysterious and unusual ceremony to rid a person of impurity. Again, the whole subject of purity and impurity, it is and will remain for us an enigma. But we know that when someone is in close contact with a corpse, with a cadaver in the same room, carrying them, etc., they become impure. Now, a Kohen, we read in the book of Leviticus, a Kohen is forbidden to become impure. A Kohen cannot just go to a cemetery, cannot just handle a dead body. A non-Kohen is allowed to become impure, but when they are impure, they are forbidden from doing many sacred activities, walking to the temple, eating sacrifices, etc. How does someone undo the status of impurity? Someone who was in contact with the dead, and now they want to go to the temple, they want to bring a pastoral offering, they want to eat sacrificial holy foods. How do they revert back to being in a state of purity? There is only one way, the Torah tells us, via the process of the red heifer. You take a red cow, it's got to be completely red, no white hairs, no black hairs. It cannot be blemished, kind of any physical flaws. It cannot be one that was used for work, kind of a yoke that went on top of it. And you have to slaughter this animal. But you don't slaughter it where other sacrifices are typically slaughtered, namely in the temple, in the tabernacle. You slaughter it outside the camp, outside Jerusalem. And it's slaughtered by a commoner, not a Kohen. There's a Kohen there to oversee it, but it's slaughtered by a commoner. And then you have this dead, massive red cow, and then you burn it. And in that fire, you throw a concoction, cedar wood, hyssop, crimson thread. You also add some more wood to make a lot of ashes. And what you're left with is a massive mound of ashes. Those ashes are the magical potion for the purification of those who became impure. You take those ashes, you mix them with some fresh water, and you sprinkle them upon someone who was impure. This is done over the course of seven days of purification, and the person is purified. If this does not make any sense to you, if this sounds very bizarre, you are in good company, because this mitzvah, in fact, the name of the parsha is chutas, which means a chok. What does a chok mean? Chok is a mitzvah that is beyond human intellect. We cannot grasp it, with the exception of Moshe, no human has ever cracked the code of the red heifer. But we read it, it's part of the Torah, and we understand 
Temple's rebuilt, please God. We're going to have to find a red heifer because all of us are considered to be impure in contact with the dead. And that doesn't go away unless we have a red heifer and this process. Now, immediately after the red heifer episode, we have the death of Miriam. Miriam is a very significant character in the Torah. Moshe's older sister, of course. She was the one who was watching him when he was put on the Nile. She's a prophetess, we're told, after the splitting of the sea. She led the women in song. She's married to Caleb that we read about a few weeks ago, one of the righteous spies. Her son is Hur, another hero of the story. And she passes, chapter 20, verse 1. The nation of Israel, the entire congregation, they arrived in the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and Miriam died, and she was buried. Now, there's a very interesting note about this verse. This verse, chapter 20, verse 1 of the book of Numbers, it marks the beginning of the narrative of the Torah from the end of the 40 years. The story of the Jews in the wilderness is 40 years. And we're told what happened at the beginning. And we're told what happened at the end. It's like a barbell. And we're told almost nothing about what happened in the interim. Rashi notes, the verse says that the whole nation came. But it says, the children of Israel came, the whole nation. There's some extra words. So Rashi tells us, this is the entire congregation. Because everyone who was designated to die in the wilderness, has already died. After the sin of the spies, the nation was condemned to all perish. All the adults will perish before the entering of the land, and their children will inherit the land. This is already at the end of that. All those who were designated to die are dead. And therefore, the entire congregation in its entirety, every person who will enter the land is accounted for And they have arrived in the wilderness of Zin. So it's an amazing thing. This event occurs 38 years after all the wilderness events that we have already read about. Effectively, the whole Torah from the middle of the book of Exodus is telling us about what happened and what was learned over the course of 40 years in the wilderness. And up to this point, chapter 20 of Numbers... It's all about the events of the first year and a half of those 40 years. And from this point forward until the end of the Torah, it's only dealing with what happened in the last year, meaning that there are 38 years in the middle that we're not told anything about. We are told that Moshe had a lower level of prophecy during those intermediate years, and we know that they traveled from place to place, And we know that they had uninterrupted manna for those 40 years. But the Torah only tells us what happened at the very beginning and the very end. Now, isn't it interesting that the very last thing that we're told from the first era is the red heifer. And the very first thing that we're told from the last era is the death of Miriam. There is a juxtaposition here of... Two parts of the Torah. One of them comes at the very end of the narrative from the beginning of the 40 years. And one of them is the very beginning of the last year of the Torah. 
And Rashi tells us that it's no coincidence. Why is the episode of the death of Miriam juxtaposed to the episode, to the narrative of the red heifer? There's a reason why these two are placed next to each other. To tell you, just as sacrifices provide atonement, someone needs an atonement to bring a sacrifice, so too the death of the righteous provides atonement. There's consistency with the sequencing of the Torah. We have the red heifer. It's a sacrifice. It provides atonement. And then we have a similar thing, the death of Miriam. She's righteous. And when she died, that provided atonement. And that's the consistency. That's the internal consistency in the sequencing of the first two elements of our Parsha. The red heifer, it's a sacrifice. Sacrifices give atonement. The death of Miriam, the death of the righteous, it also provides atonement. This is how Rashi explains the juxtaposition of these two parts of our Parsha. So there's a very interesting idea here. When Miriam died, there was a degree of atonement. Now, if by any chance you listen to the rebroadcast podcast, the podcast where we go through the entire Parsha, not just one idea, but the entire parsha in about an hour or two when it's double parsha, we mentioned that this concept appears in four different contexts in the Torah. The idea that the death of the righteous has some positive byproducts. It appears in four different contexts in the Torah. And we mentioned a mind-expanding idea from the Kliyakar, who says that each one of them is a little bit different because it corresponds to a different element of how the righteous benefit their generation. But today I want to take this concept, the death of Miriam, the death of the righteous, provides atonement like a sacrifice. I want to take it in two different ways. I think it will be very interesting and instructive. We know that when Miriam died, the nation suffered. And they suffered because there was a well. The well was rolling with the Jewish nation, with the encampment of the Jewish people. All the way back since the time, right after the Exodus. And that well was emitting water. And when Miriam died, this water stopped which is why right after the episode of the death of Miriam, you have the water crisis. There's no water. Moshe is told to speak to the rock and he hits the rock, etc. And it's a debacle. This well that was in this rock, in the stone, is called the well of Miriam. And it's the same rock that was struck in, I think it's chapter 16 or 17 of Exodus, in Rephidim, where Moshe initially hit the rock, that same rock has been following the Jewish people and emitting water for almost 40 years. And now Miriam dies and the water stops. And then everyone realizes that the water that we've been enjoying for decades has been given to us in the merit of Miriam. And the Talmud tells us that there were three great gifts that the nation received 
in the wilderness. They had three leaders, and each leader in their merit, we got one gift. The well came in the merit of Miriam. The pillar of cloud, the clouds of glory, came in the merit of Aaron. And the manna came in the merit of Moshe. Continues the Talmud, the book of Titus, page 9a. When Miriam died, the well that had come to the nation in her merit, the well dried up. But then the well returned in the merit, not of Miriam, because she had passed, but in the merit of Moshe and Aaron. And when Aaron died, again later on in our Parsha, the clouds of glory ceased because they were in his merit. And when he passed, we lost those clouds. And that's why right after those clouds went away, we were attacked by a Amalek. We were now exposed. We were vulnerable. So Miriam dies, well goes away. It comes back in the merit of Moshe and Aaron. Aaron dies, the clouds go away. We are attacked. But then it also comes back in the merit of Moshe. And when Moshe passed, all three of these benefits went away. We lost Moshe, we lost the well permanently, we lost those clouds permanently, and we lost the manna permanently. So there's a lot more that's happening here around the death of Miriam. If you study this Talmud very carefully, you'll see something very instructive. After Miriam passes, the well goes away. After Aaron passes, the clouds go away, but then they come back. Why did they come back? The well came back, the Talmud tells us, in the merit of Moshe and Aaron, the two remaining siblings of this vaunted family. And the clouds come back after Aaron passes in the merit of Moshe. But think about it deeply. How does this work? We have a well in the merit of Miriam. And therefore, when Miriam passes, it made sense for us to lose said well. We had the well only in her merit, and we no longer have her merit. So we don't no longer have the byproduct, the outgrowth of her merit, namely the well. But then, tells us the Talmud, it came back in the merit of Aaron and Moshe. I don't understand. We need the merit of Miriam for the well. And then when she dies, we temporarily lose her, or we lose her merit. And therefore we lose the well. So what does it mean that it comes back due to Aaron and Moshe? It doesn't just return because. There's a deep point over here. When Miriam passed, the well went away because the merit went away. When it came back, it was only because the merit of Miriam came back. This is the deep idea here. The death of the righteous provides atonement. Why? It doesn't just happen because. When someone great passes, there's an opportunity that arises. There's an opportunity to aspire for greatness that arises. Someone like Miriam passes. You're able to assess and to admire and to marvel a great person. 
And that can be used as an opportunity to prod yourself to try to copy them, to try to achieve greatness yourself as well. No pun intended. So Miriam passes and the, the well ceases. But it is returned due to the greatness of motion, Aaron. Why? It was only there initially in the merit of Miriam, not in the merit of Moshe and Aaron. After Miriam passed, Moshe and Aaron took the opportunity to recognize the greatness of Miriam and to themselves adopt the great qualities, the resplendent character, the greatness of Miriam. They adopted her qualities. They acquired it themselves. And therefore, sometime later, the well came back because of Moshe and Aaron, meaning the merit of Miriam was still needed for the well. But the merit of Miriam was restored. Thanks to the transformation of Aaron and Moshe, they adopted her qualities. They perpetuated her greatness. And this is a living example of how the death of the righteous provides atonement. It's not some like uh, unrelated, uncorrelated idea. We don't believe that you know someone else could do something and can have a transformation and elevation. Well, maybe we do believe that. But there's a deeper concept over here. Someone else dying, like, why would that be a positive thing? Why would that cleanse you? Why would that elevate you? Why would that provide atonement like a sacrifice that you bring? You're sitting on your couch. You're relaxing. You're watching the game and smoking your cigar and you're going to get elevated? We have a principle. Nothing in the spiritual world happens just because. You have to earn it. The death of the righteous provides atonement if you follow the model of Moshe and Aaron. Where are we told this idea? In the death of Miriam. And we know what happened. It was a, it was a crisis. Think about the crisis. There's no water for a nation of millions of people. This is a real danger, an imminent existential danger. And it was all because of the loss of the merit of Miriam. And they, namely Moshe and Aaron, undertook to adopt all her righteousness and to fill the void that she left behind. And that is how the well was restored. So the death of the righteous, this is idea number one. When people study the deeds of the righteous and commit to perpetuate them themselves, that provides atonement, that provides elevation and refinement. So that's one idea. It's like a warm-up idea to the next idea. The next idea is courtesy of the Maharal. He provides an outstanding insight into the nature of change and development and the different methods, different means of change, of development, and transformation. He starts off with a question about this idea. So so we're told, we have the red heifer, and it's a sacrifice, and it provides atonement. And right afterwards, we have the death of Miriam, and our sages tell us, well, the juxtaposition is not coincidental. It's because the death of the righteous also has sacrifice-like atonement with it. Here's the question. We have a whole book 
of Leviticus. And there are dozens of laws related to sacrifices, and there's all sorts of different sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Our sages are telling us that the red heifer is a sacrifice, and it provides atonement, and therefore the death of the, of the righteous, which is right next to it in the order of the Torah, that also provides atonement. There were ample other sacrifices that could have been used to teach this idea. Ola sacrifice, elevation, chattas, guilt offering, shlomim, peace offering. There's all sorts of sacrifices that provide atonement. And it can be juxtaposed to a death of a righteous. And it can teach us this idea. Somehow the Torah waited until the red heifer, which is the most unusual of all sacrifices, as we shall see. And specifically with the red heifer, the Torah makes the juxtaposition with the death of the righteous to teach you this idea that the death of the righteous provides atonement. Why? Why specifically is this idea taught in relation to the red heifer? It could have, maybe it ought to have been taught by other sacrifices. That's the question that the Maharal poses. He actually quotes an earlier sage, the Maharai. It's a little confusing. But there's even an earlier sage that asks this question and gives the following answer. Red heifer is not really a sacrifice. It doesn't follow the protocol of a sacrifice. It's not offered on the altar. In fact, it's slaughtered outside the city. Any other standard, ordinary sacrifice would be considered invalid if slaughtered outside the temple. So we have a sacrifice, but it's not really a sacrifice. It doesn't follow the rules, the protocols of sacrifices. Yet the verse in our Parsha, 19.9, calls it a chattas which is the name of a sacrifice. It's called a purification. It does resemble, to some extent, a sacrifice. And therefore, says the Maharai, it is apt, it is fitting to compare this non-sacrifice sacrifice to the death of the righteous. The death of the righteous is also not a sacrifice. And therefore, it's it's most fitting if we're going to compare something to the death of the righteous, it should be something which is kind of like a sacrifice, but not really a sacrifice. That's what he says. Now, if you think about it, there's a, a deep idea here. There are different types of sacrifices. You have an ordinary sacrifice or a standard sacrifice follows certain rules. And yes, there, there are different details. There are myriad dif- different details in every sacrifice. But there is a, a basic structure that is similar with all ordinary sacrifices. And then you have the red heifer. It's not technically a sacrifice. It's not slaughtered in the temple. It's not offered upon the altar. But it is called a sacrifice. It has some elements of a sacrifice. And both provide atonement. Both provide purification. Ordinary sacrifices, of course, provide atonement and cleansing, each sacrifice in their own way. 
And the red heifer also provides atonement. But in a different way. In our parsha, the final Rashi, the final verse of chapter 19, Rashi tells us that the red heifer atones for the sin of the golden calf. Forty days after the Sinai revelation, the nation is doing the golden calf. They miscalculate when Moshe supposed to come down with the tablets. And he comes down and he shatters the tablets. And this is one of the seminal events in the Torah. One of the really tragic moments in the Torah. And that's a national sin. And the red heifer, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with a golden calf, the red heifer provides an atonement for the sin of the golden calf. And Rashi tells us that, well, a calf is a baby cow. It's a baby bovine. And the red heifer is like the mom. And Rashi compares this to uh, a maidservant who's working for the king in the palace. And she has her child. And the child soils the floor of the palace. Who comes and cleans up that mess? The mom does. Similarly, the golden calf, the baby cow, makes a huge mess in the nation. And who comes to wipe things up, to clean things up? It's mom, the red heifer. So there's a connection between the red heifer and the golden calf. Now, as is true with everything red heifer related, it's all very, very, very deep. So we're just scratching the surface here. There's a, there's, there's a connection. There's, 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 you know, it's not just this is the baby cow. This is the mama cow. There's something deeper going on over here. We're told that Sinai, the Sinai revelation, it was the rectification of the sin of Adam. Adam, he sinned. He absorbed and imbibed the influence of the serpent. And he had the noxious venom of the serpent, so to speak, coursing within him. Adam was really supposed to live forever. Adam was supposed to be immortal. But when he ate from the tree, as God told him, you're going to die, meaning you're going to be someone who is mortal. You're going to necessarily die. So the fate of humanity since the sin of Adam was temporary. We're, we're going to die. At Sinai, the nation was transformed. We became like angels. And the sin of Adam was undone. The venomous elements of that sin of imbibing the fruit, those elements were purged. The nation was restored to the level of Adam before his sin. We became immortal again. And thus, for those 40 days, we were like Adam in the garden. And that came crashing down with the sin of the golden calf. The sin of the golden calf is a mirror image of the sin of Adam. That diminished humanity, or at least the Jewish nation, once more. 
In effect, the nation became mortal again. Just as the sin of Adam introduced death to humanity, the sin of the golden calf reintroduced death to the nation. So the sin of the golden calf really is is about human death. The red heifer, that's the remedy to death. That's the remedy to the impurity that results from close contact with the dead. The mother comes to clean up after the baby who soiled the palace. So right away we see that there is a connection here between the golden calf and the red heifer. And we see how the red heifer provides atonement. But there's a deep point over here. This is the idea that I want to convey today. There are two types of sacrifices. There are ordinary sacrifices, standard sacrifices. And yes, they're all different, but they follow a a similar protocol. And then there's the red heifer. Each provides a degree of atonement. But the death of the righteous, the death of Miriam, is similar specifically to the red heifer type of atonement, not to the ordinary sacrifice type of atonement. How so? Explains the Maharal. There are two types of atonement. There are two forms of atonement. There are two forms of transformation. Both of them relate to sacrifices and to animals. But what you do with those animals is very different. An ordinary sacrifice, you take it to Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem, you take it to the temple. And you take it to the altar. And it's handled by the Kohanim. And it is elevated. The red heifer doesn't go to Jerusalem. It goes outside of Jerusalem. It's not handled by a Kohen. It's overseen by a Kohen, but not handled by a Kohen. And it is not elevated. One of them is elevated. One of them is incinerated. There are two ways to transform an animal. When we say animal, that's another way of saying bodily instinct. We are hybrids. We're half animal, half angel, body, soul. Our sins are all the byproduct of our body. And when we're we're doing animal sacrifice, it's not like we have some idea to torture animals and we like to watch them suffer. In fact, the prohibition against making animals suffer, we've had it for thousands and thousands of years. It's a debate. Is it biblical in nature? Is it rabbinic in nature? But thousands of years ago, we've already said that it's prohibited to cause any animal any pain, unless it's for human benefit. So what's the deep insight of sacrifices? It's showing us what we need to do with our own animal. It's guiding us how to deal with our own crisis that we have of identity between the the animal and the angel waging war within us. 
And there are two ways to do it. You can take the animal, bring it to the temple, bring it to the altar, have it managed by the Kohanim, and offer it and elevate it up to God. And then there's another way. Take it outside Jerusalem, not handled by the Kohen, and have it burned. In the Torah, there are different words that are used to describe the burning of animals as a sacrifice. The process is identical. It's fire, you put the animal in the fire, and it burns. And it's turned into dust, ashes. One of them connotes elevation, transformation, haktara. One of them connotes incineration, burning, srefa. There are two types of sacrifices, and there are two types of atonement. There are two types of transformation. One is the ordinary standard sacrifices, and one is the red heifer. There are two forms of transformation. One is to elevate, and one is to break down. One is to offer to heaven on high, and one is to eliminate. And both are going to provide atonement and transformation, but in very different ways. The verse tells us that a sacrifice provides a pleasant aroma to God. Reach nichoach lashem. Now we're sufficiently trained to know that it's not a gift for God and God is not corporeal. He doesn't smell our aroma. We know that the essence of a sacrifice is where a human is saying, I'm going to take my body, my animal, and I'm going to elevate it to God. I'm going to dedicate it in the service of the Almighty. And I'm not just going to say, well, my soul will be dedicated to God. Even the physical, even my body. And that's the elevation. That's what it means that a a mortal man, and not just the soul, even the animal parts of man, can do something that can be described as pleasant for God? Think about what that means. Think about what that implies about human potential. We have the ability to take our animal, our physicality, our body, and to do something desirous by God with it. That's what a sacrifice is, the ordinary sacrifice. It's a statement. Yes, I have animal-like tendencies and weaknesses and instincts and flaws. But my body can serve as a means to provide a pleasant aroma, whatever that means, for God. My body can be dedicated for heaven. My body can be changed. It can be transformed into something beautiful, something holy, something eternal. Our animal, our internal animal, can find some place in the Almighty's temple. It's a mind Bending idea. Small, 
fallible, pitiful me, our body, our animal, can accomplish great things. Think about how transformational the idea of our sacrifices. The enormous potential that we have, we can be elevated. This is an incredible means of transformation. It's a deep recognition of the endless qualities that we have, the endless potential that we all have. And a sacrifice is to embrace that. It's to lean into it. It's to use this ceremony and this protocol and the knowledge that we learn along the way to really demand a lot of ourselves, to elevate ourselves. And sometimes when someone sins, they bring a sacrifice. Why? To to remember their incredible, vast potential. You bring a sacrifice and, and you're doing this whole thing with the animal, but really it's a lesson for you. You're elevating the animal in the temple, by the Kohanim, on the altar, as a pleasant aroma to God. You can use that mistake as a springboard to really transform yourself. You are reminding yourself of the incredible potential, the incredible greatness that is embedded within you. And when you see the animal being offered on the altar, you use that to remember what potential you have and even your animal has, your your internal animal, that is. And you coach yourself, you urge yourself, you exhort yourself to try to fan that greatness to life. That is the transformation of ordinary standard sacrifices. There's another way to change everything. There's another way to be completely transformed. And that's the red heifer. Now it's a red, it's a red heifer. Red always spells trouble, we know. Asav was red. Kabbalistically, red is always symbolic. I think it's even true in, in our own psyches. Red is symbolic of sin and problems. This is a very different process of taking an animal. You don't bring it to the temple. You don't offer it on the altar. You take it outside. And you don't even elevate it. You burn it. You incinerate it. And it's not elevated to God. It's not a pleasant aroma to, to God. It's it's being burned. It's being eliminated. You're reducing it to ashes. The ashes is what you want. You want nothing to do with that animal. This is the exact opposite approach. This is not an exercise in recognizing your limitless potential. It's the opposite. This is a means to recognize your weakness your fallibility, your vulnerability, to see where you are exposed, where you're flawed, to see what parts of you have no place in the temple and to take it outside the city and to eliminate it and to burn it. They're both called sacrifices, but they work in opposite ways. One is discovering your potential and trying to embrace that and lean into that and channel that. And one is a process of discovering your flaws and divesting them from yourself and taking it outside and burning it and getting rid of it, finding your weaknesses and neutralizing it. There are two types of sacrifices, ordinary sacrifices. They are elevated as a pleasant aroma to the Almighty. And then there's the red heifer. 
And that's not elevated, that's burned outside the city. And yes, both provide atonement, both provide cleansing, both provide purification, but in opposite ways. The sacrifices remind us of our limitless potential. We, even our physicality, can provide a pleasant aroma before God. And the red heifer reminds us of our flaws, of our weaknesses, of our shortcomings, of what we need to burn outside the city. One of them is a process of deviating from bad, and one is the process of embracing good and their opposite approaches. One of them is compared to the death of the righteous. There's a reason why the death of the righteous is compared to the red heifer and not the other sacrifices. There is a process whereby you can recognize how small you are and how flawed you are. You see someone who's great and they've passed and you compare yourself to them and you remember effectively your flaws. You think about the golden calf. You think about the soiled mess in the palace. You ruminate on your flaws and your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. That is the process that can provide atonement, but what type of atonement? The red heifer type of atonement. It's very interesting that we have all sorts of sacrifices and the very, very last one that is mentioned is the red heifer. All of Leviticus, we have all the sacrifices. During those first year of the 40 years, it talks a lot about sacrifices. And the absolute last one is the red heifer. There's another lesson here. There are two ways that we can transform ourselves. We could discover our great potential and embrace that and channel that and try to elevate that as a pleasant aroma to the Almighty. And then there's the opposite process of discovering your flaws and eliminating them. Which one do you do first? The very last one that's mentioned is the red heifer. First, you need all the standard sacrifices of their manifold variety. The very last process is the sensing of your flaws. This teaches us that we first have to realize our potential. Our grandfather, blessed memory, used to quote his teacher who would say, Woe unto someone who does not know his flaws double woe unto he who does not know his qualities. We have to realize before we get started, we have incredible potential. We have incredible ability. Even our physicality can be channeled and directed to heaven on high. My grandfather would advise young people not to try to limit their arrogance and hubris and pride as youngsters. Even though if you read the Talmud, it talks about pride and arrogance in 
the most harsh of ways. If someone is prideful, it's like they reject God. If someone is arrogant, they have to be uprooted like an idol. But there's danger. If you start noticing all the flaws before you really embrace all those strengths that you have, all those qualities that you have, you may forever remain small. We have all those other sacrifices, all the sacrifices of the pleasant aroma first, and the very last one. Okay, once you're done with that, now perfect it. Find the flaws. Do the touch-ups. Make sure that you are, in fact, perfect. I think there are some very valuable lessons here. This is, I think, a framework for self-improvement and personal development. And that's not just a nice thing to, to do and to have. Why are we here? Our answer, the Torah's answer as to why we are here is to improve ourselves, is to fix ourselves, is to elevate ourselves, is to transform ourselves. And every situation that we are in, can present an opportunity to grow, to change, to transform. And the death of the righteous can also provide atonement, we're told. And we saw a few ideas about this. The first idea is that, well, when someone great passes, it's an opportunity to learn about them. It's an opportunity to adopt their qualities and to perpetuate them. Moshe and Aaron restore the well of Miriam, not willy-nilly for no reason. It was because they became greater themselves through the process of mourning their sister. That's one angle on the idea that the death of the righteous provides atonement. You could see tangibly how great a person could become. You could see what you lost, and you could see the person that you can become as well. The second idea is almost the opposite idea. The death of the righteous is compared specifically to a red heifer. There are two forms of sacrifice and transformation. Ordinary, standard sacrifices and the red heifer. There's a process of elevation, finding your qualities, finding your potential. And that's how you start. Then, and only then, there's the other process of finding your flaws and rectifying them and then take them outside and burning them. Only if you are firmly aware of your strengths and your qualities, only then is it proper to begin the other process to remedy and rectify your faults. May we all merit to become righteous, to elevate ourselves, and to perfect ourselves and remove any flaws. Now we end the podcast with a question. And because it is a double parsha, I figured we'd give a double question. And it relates to the well of Miriam. The well of Miriam ceased when Miriam died. But here's a question I've never seen anyone else ask. Maybe it's the first time it's been asked. Miriam died once before. What? Yeah. The Talmud tells us that there are four people who are alive, but are considered dead by the eyes of the Torah. And one of them is someone who has tsaras. 
And Miriam, at the end of Parshas Beha'aloscha, she had Tsaras. Yet, the water did not stop when she died the first time. And the question is, well, if there is a rule that if we have something in the merit of someone and they pass, we lose that thing, how come when Miriam passed the first time, the well did not cease? Why is that form of death not one that stops the benefit that the person bestows upon the community? That's a good question. I think most of y'all could probably think of an answer because after all, they're still alive, right? I think it's a clever question, so we'll share it. But I want to share another question. The Talmud tells us we have the manna and the merit of Moshe and the clouds of glory and the merit of Aaron and the well and the merit of Miriam. And then when they died, they lost it. Sometimes they came back, but when Moshe died, they all, they all ceased. That is featured in the Talmud, as we mentioned, the book of Titus, page 9a. However, in the book of Bava Metziah, on page 86b, it tells us something contradictory. It tells us that we received these three themes, the manna, the pillar of cloud, the clouds of glory, and the well, and the merit of Abraham. When Abraham fed those angels, he gave them food. And in that merit, we got food. We got the manna. And he gave them shade. And he stood over them. And in that merit, we got the clouds of glory. And he gave them water. And in that merit, we got the well. So we have two teachings in the Talmud that are both purporting to tell us the merit that earned us the manna, the clouds, and the well. And in one place we're told, all three came from Abraham. And in a second place we are told that the manna came from Moshe, or in the merit of Moshe, the clouds in the merit of Aaron, and the well in the merit of Miriam. Interesting contradiction. So the Maharsha gives an answer, and I think it's an answer that we could probably develop into a nice principle. He says like this, Both are true. In the merit of Abraham, we got all three. And in the merit of Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron, we got those three. The merit of Abraham, that would only suffice to initiate these three things. But to perpetuate it for 40 years, that was not in the merit of Abraham. That was in the merit of Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. An interesting idea that two merits were needed, one to start it off, one to kickstart it, one to initiate it, and one to continue it, to perpetuate it. Very interesting idea. And I think there are some nice lessons for us, maybe in everything in life. We need double merits if we want to have it and to have it for some time. I thank you for listening. You have an incredible rest of your day, a a splendid rest of your week, and uh, an incredible, wonderful, uplifting Shabbos. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.
www.ghostbusinessradio.com.